Kia ora, I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2018 event. Superstar neuroscientist David Eagleman's latest book, co-authored with composer Anthony Brandt, is The Runaway Species, How Human Creativity Remakes the World. In it, the pair weave together the sciences and the arts to explore human inventiveness and put the case for novelty. David Eagleman, Creative Fellow of the Creative Thinking Project based at the University of Auckland, gives this one-off lecture and tour of human creativity, from Picasso to concept cars, umbrellas to lunar travel, and discusses the cognitive software that makes it all possible. We hope you enjoy this as much as we did. The session is supported by the Creative Thinking Project. Hello, hello. It's great to, it's great to be here and to see so many friends, old and new. Um, so here's what I want to talk about today, is this issue about why we're a runaway species. And what I mean by that is if you uh, fly over a forest, for example, and you look out the window of the airplane, it looks exactly the same it did as a million years ago. The animals are doing the same sort of thing, building the same sorts of houses and so on. But when you arrive at the city that you're going to, it looks like a motherboard has risen out of the earth, and that's all due to the ingenuity of one species on the planet. So when you compare us to our cousins in the animal kingdom, we're doing something really different. It's not that other animals aren't creative, it's just that they're not creative in nearly the same way that we are. And so the question is, you know, why is that? Why aren't squirrels designing elevators and why aren't alligators designing speedboats and koalas putting on artistic festivals like this and so on? And, uh, and so the answer has to do with, um, a little bit to do with the opposable thumb and the larynx, but more to do with the, the brain. So in the development of the human brain, we got a lot more cortex. That's the wrinkly bit on the outside. And that uh, allowed us to sort of take off from the other species because the amount of cortex we have for our body size is really extraordinary. So this, this sort of led to two separate issues. One is that in most animals' brains, there's this uh, you've got sensory input and then you've got motor output and these are really close together. So animals essentially act reflexively. But as the human brain expanded, as the cortex got larger, we got more and more territory in between there. And so instead of acting reflexively, it gives us an opportunity for information to come in and we chew on it, we think about it, and maybe we act, maybe we don't act. And, and that allows us to, um, to be to generate rich possibilities instead of just acting. And the other thing is, we got a much larger prefrontal cortex. So that's the bit just behind our forehead. And this is what allows us to unhook from our position in space and time and simulate possible futures, to simulate what ifs. So this allowed our species to say, okay, instead of being trapped right here, I'm gonna think, well, what if I did this? What if I, what if I had done that? What if I could do this? And so on. And, and these very minor changes genetically. It didn't take much to cause this big expansion in the cortex, but this allows us to lean into the future, constantly evaluating hypotheses and um, you know, generating and evaluating these. And so one of the consequences of all this is that we don't, generate, we, don't, we don't tolerate much in the way of repetition. So many of you saw the movie Groundhog Day and Bill Murray is forced to relay, relive a single day over and over. And um, he rebels against the monotony there, and he learns French, and he becomes a piano virtuoso, and he becomes a matchmaker, and so on. So the question is, why isn't Bill satisfied to just be a creature of habit? And the answer has to do with 
the way activity goes in the brain. And it's, essentially, the brain is always seeking novelty. It's seeking new information. And doing the same thing over and over is uninteresting to it. So when you look at brain activity, you see a big response when the brain first confronts something. But as you keep repeating it over and over, there's less and less of a response. The brain is burning less energy on it. And this phenomenon is called repetition suppression. And so as a result of this, um, we are constantly seeking novelty. This is at the, the, the fountainhead of our creativity, is that we're constantly seeking novelty. But there's something interesting here, which is that we don't want things that are too novel. So we're happy to spend a few days at Burning Man, but we don't want to spend the whole year there. And so there's a trade-off between exploring the unknown and exploiting what we already know. And so there's this constant tug of war between novelty and familiarity. If something, is, um, if something is too predictable, we tune out. And if it's too novel, we become disoriented. And the interesting part is that creativity, when you look across societies, uh, what you find is that creativity is always living in that tension. So one, one example of this is what's called skewmorphs. How many people have heard of skewmorphs, by the way? Has anyone heard that term? OK, so these are the, these, these digital artifacts that represent something in the physical world. So, um, you know, the save button is an old floppy disk, and none of our children even have any idea what that is. But, but it allows us to tie ourselves to the past. So as things are moving on, we have physical things, or, you know, we make phone calls with an old handset. And again, none of our kids know, have ever seen a handset like that. Um, we send email in an enveloped letter. Uh, we drag files that we don't want to a trash can, even though there's zeros and ones. We buy online in a shopping cart and so on. All of this is a way of keeping an umbilical cord to the past. And so as a result of these two opposing drives between novelty and familiarity, we want things that are novel, but we're comfortable with what we already know. We, as a species, constantly surround ourselves with things that have never existed before, but they're practical next steps for us. And one of the things this means is that all new ideas evolve from the old. Um, so if you look at innovations that seem to define this generation, like the iPhone, they, they seem to be a bolt out of the blue, but they're actually not. So here, as an example, is the IBM Simon from 1993. It was a touchscreen cell phone, and it was introduced two decades before. So although it's not always obvious or visible, <clears throat> there's a smooth progression of innovation that got us from there to here. All creativity is based on prior experience. All new ideas have a history. And if you look at what Henry Ford said about the Model T, he said, I invented nothing new. I simply assembled into a car the discoveries of other men behind whom were centuries of work. So human innovation comes from this continual process of branching and selection. We try out lots of ideas. Some of them survive. And those that live become the basis for the next generation of invention and experimentation. So if all ideas have a history like this, the question is, uh, my, my co-author Tony Brandt and I started addressing this question about four years ago. We wrote this book, The Runaway Species. We wanted to understand, can we understand how ideas interact and evolve to lead to the next generation of ideas? And so what we proposed was a framework that divides the landscape of cognitive operations into three basic strategies, bending, breaking, and blending. And the idea is that these are the primary means by which all ideas evolve. This is the basic cognitive software that's running under the hood. So we absorb the world, and we do these things to it, and that's how we generate new worlds. So in bending, what you do is you take a source, and you transform it, or you twist it out of shape. 
In breaking, you take something that's a whole and you break it into pieces. And in blending, you merge two or more sources. So if you take a man, you blend it with a bull. In ancient Greece, you get a minotaur. And, and the idea is these are the main brain operations that underlie innovative thinking. And so what we do is we run around the world and we apply this software to everything around us, everything that we're taking in. And this is how we generate a, a tidal wave of novel worlds that's always running ahead of us. Now, the interesting part is that creativity is often very difficult to see a lot of the times. Creativity is under the hood and, and inaccessible. So just as an example, uh, some years ago, YouTube started offering high-definition videos. Uh, but there was a problem, which is that these require high bandwidth and often at, at somebody's home, the internet provider doesn't have high enough bandwidth, and so <clears throat> viewers' computers were freezing up when, when YouTube tried to pass these HD videos. So how did they solve the problem? Well, <clears throat> what they do is they store the videos, every video they break up into little pieces and they store it in uh, high definition standard and low. And so as, your, uh, as the video is streaming to your computer, it's constantly checking on the available bandwidth, and so <clears throat> when there's enough bandwidth, the high-resolution clips come through, and when it's lower, the lower-resolution bandwidth come through. So as long as there's enough high-definition clips in your stream, you don't even notice that anything is, is strange. All you notice is that the streaming never paused. Um, and so the engineer's solution was very creative. But the key thing is that you, you don't see the creativity that underlies that, that streaming. It's, you know, it's supposed to be essentially undetectable. It's covert. And, and many examples of creativity are like this. So if you look at a, a building, the facade of a building, you don't typically know what's behind there, the ducts and the wiring and the pipes and everything that keeps the whole system running. It's totally invisible to us. But when you look at something like the Pompidou Center in Paris, the air ducts and the pipes and the wiring are all on the outside of the building. And that is what the arts give us. It gives us overt creativity. What the arts do is they showcase the creativity that under, otherwise it lies hidden in our lives and we're not aware of it. So it exposes the innards of the creative process. Um, so the key is that whether the creativity is overt or covert, the cognitive tools are exactly the same. And so what I wanted to do this morning was just take a closer look at bending, breaking, and blending and how these give birth to new ideas. So let's start with bending. So, Bending is like a theme in variations. You take a prototype and you refashion it in some way. So here's a bottle from ancient Phoenicia, and this uh, is constantly reshaped by cultures all over the world. And similarly, you have inscriptions using the Latin alphabet, and here are just a, a few of the thousands of ways that the alphabet has been remade. Now, why do we need thousands of ways to reference the alphabet? It's because humans have this compulsion to bend everything that we can. And what's interesting is where this plays out in, our, in science and in the arts and in our lives, just as one example, um, in biology. So hearts fail, and scientists began to wonder if they could make an artificial one. And in 1982, this is what the artificial heart looked like. It was a mechanical pump, but the problem is it was big and it was heavy and it would get worn down. And so in 2004, doctors came up with a novel solution. Instead of using a pump, why not just use a continuous flow? So blood gets oxygenated as it passes through and it flows right back out. So when you get one of these, you no longer have a pulse. The blood just flows through. So for example, Dick Cheney has one and he's pulseless. And, <laughs> and so there's a heart inside your chest, but it doesn't use the exact same principles that mother nature gave you. It's a bend of what is found in nature. And there are so many ways to bend things. Um, 
You can bend an object size, for example. So for the Rio Olympics, the artist JR built this uh, image of the high jumper several stories high. And just as bending can enlarge, it can shrink. So these are miniature figurines by the sculptor Alberto Giacometti. And these sorts of moves that you see in the art world, you see the same thing in the science world. So just as an example, um, in the 1920s, Edwin Land had to solve a big problem with automobiles, which is that there was a lot of glare that you'd get through the headlights, and it was dangerous when there was an approaching car. So he knew that he could eliminate the glare if he used polarizing crystals, but the problem is that these were too big to use for a windshield. So his aha moment was the same as what the sculptor Giacometti did with the figurines. He realized that the solution was to shrink these down to a very small size. So he made the he made glass embedded with thousands of these little tiny crystals embedded inside of them. And so the driver got a better view of the road, but the creativity that produced it remained invisible. Um, and of course, size is just one of an infinite number of features that can be bent. Uh, architect Frank Gehry looked at the flat facade of buildings and wondered, could he bend the shape? And this is a Gehry building in lower Manhattan. <clears throat> um, a similar bend is refashioning the future of cars. So one of the impediments from converting gasoline from, to, to converting engines from gasoline to hydrogen is the bulkiness of the tank. Hydrogen tanks are very big and bulky and take up a lot of cargo space. So there's a company in, in Silicon Valley where I am which is um, developing a tank which folds on itself in layers and can snake into the unused space of the car and it finds ways to make the volume work by twisting it around. And the human brain, of course, will even bend time. So this clip from the movie 300 bends the speed. And, and time can even run backward. And this sort of thinking uh, is the same that's found in the sciences. So the ability to run films backwards got the physicist Ernst Stuckelberg thinking about a new kind of thought experiment. He realized he could describe the behavior of elementary particles if he simply assumed that some of them were running backwards in time. So the particles that we call electrons are actually equivalent to protons racing the other way in time, and that bending won him the Nobel Prize. Um, and several scientists are pursuing the idea of cloning a Neanderthal by reversing the arrow of time in the sense that you start with a human genome and you run evolution backwards and you undo all the genetic changes that separate us from our distant ancestors. And by bending time this way, the scientists hope to bring the Neanderthal back to life. Now, let me say a general statement, which is we often fall prey to the end of time illusion where we think that everything that can be done has already been done and that's all that's gonna happen. But the history of bending always tells a different story. There's always more to squeeze out. So just as an example, take a knife, they're a practical, well-established tool. This is a collection of knives I've found, uh, all from 19th century Polynesia. And so cultures all over the world, they've never stopped bending the knife and figured out ways to do something new. And, and the same sort of thing applies to something like umbrellas. These have existed since ancient times. And it seems like with the modern folding umbrella, we've kind of arrived at the end of the line. But the United States Patent Office has four full-time people that just deal with patents for umbrellas. And so... <laughs> Um, just as an example, the, uh, the upper left, there's an asymmetrical shape for better wind resistance. In the bottom left, it's a hands-free umbrella. Uh, the one on the right is the ribs on the outside and so on. So because of our perpetual manipulations, human culture never stops exploring variations on themes. Okay, so that's bending. And now we're going to look at the second tool of innovation, breaking. 
Um, so new things are often built by taking other things apart. Um, and so we find examples of breaking all through the arts. So just as an example, um, Tchaikovsky quotes fragments of the French national anthem in his 1812 uh, overture. So here's, here's Edith Piaf singing the anthem. And here's how Tchaikovsky incorporates that fragment into his orchestral work. And when you look at something like cubism, that shattered the visual plane. Um, this is a sculpture called Broken Obelisk, in which the obelisk is snapped in half. And, and the breaking that's so easy to observe in the arts, it's the same thing that happens in the sciences. So this is Fred Sanger. He was trying to figure out a way to read the sequence of DNA. And uh, he devised a way, finally, to break up the DNA into very small chunks. And that made it easier to analyze and collate. And so he won two Nobel Prizes for his breaking techniques, which are responsible for much of what we know about the human genome. Uh, there are lots of ways to break something. Here you, uh, this is David Hockney creating a photo collage using big pieces. Meanwhile, in pointillistic painting, the pieces are much smaller and there are a lot more of them. And in digital pixelation, the dots are so small that you're not even supposed to see them. And this is the innovation that underlies most of our digital universe. And breaking gives you the opportunity to leave pieces and parts out. So here's a, a sculpture um, that leaves out whole parts of the human body. Um, the artist Cory Archangel created a, a video installation by hacking into the computer game Super Mario Brothers and removing everything but the clouds. And then he projected the clouds onto a large screen. He called this installation Super Mario Clouds. And, and the, same, the same sort of technique uh, works in my field. So when you look at the brain, it's hard to tell where the pathways begin and where they go. Uh, but there's a new method called clarity, which washes away the fatty molecules and leaves the rest of the structure intact. So just as Archangel removed part of the video game for his Mario Brothers installation, the same creative approach in the laboratory removes most of the brain and allows us to see it in a new way. Ungluing the pieces allows the structure to change shape. And uh, David Fisher's dynamic architecture breaks apart the solid frame of a building and allows the floors to move independently. See, this is what's amazing, actually, is the, is the reaction. Because once you've seen this, then you'll never unsee it. Then you can always realize that that can be broken up. Um, and uh, I'll tell you something similar, which is engineers designing a prosthetic hand. I, I know this gentleman. Um, the engineers who made his hand realized that they didn't have to be limited by biology. So our wrists are constrained by our tendons, but the engineers realized they could break that constraint. Why not design a wrist that just keeps on turning? <laughs> so, so whether you're an artist or a scientist, uh, breaking opens up a world of creative options to take things apart and put the pieces together in new ways. So the third tool, the last, is, is blending, which, which merges sources. So, all across the world, cultures do this. So um, in ancient Egypt, you blend a man and a lion, you get a sphinx. Um, in, uh, in Africa, if you blend a woman with a fish, you get a mamiwata. 
And in, um, in Italy, if you've been a lion and a goat, you get this chimera and so on. But exactly what happens in mythology happens in science too. So <clears throat> spider silk, it turns out, is, is stronger than steel for its size, but it's very hard to harvest because if you get a bunch of spiders together, they'll fight each other and they'll eat each other. And so a geneticist came up with an idea that was akin to the, uh, to the chimera, which is, so they, what they did is they took out the little uh, bit of DNA that encodes for spider silk, and they put that into a goat. And the result was Freckles the spider goat, who secretes spider silk in her milk. So this is a real-life chimera, and this is how you can generate lots of spider silk now, by blending. Um, I'll give you another example. Blending is pervasive in the arts. So in hip-hop music, fragments of previous music are repurposed and included in things to form a new song. So here's a drum solo called the Amen Break from a 1969 song by the Winstons. So that's all has been blended into a track by Mantronics. And also by Salt and Peppa. And almost 2,000 other songs all of which have blended the DNA of the old into the new. And you see this in art all the time. The brain can make exotic combinations, in this case, uh, blending the living and the non-living. But that exact same sort of blend forms a solution to the problem of the world's crumbling buildings and road, roads, most of which are made out of concrete. So the problem is that concrete gets worn down by weather and, and it cracks. Um, and it's hard to repair. So what scientists did recently is they blended concrete with a bacterium that secretes calcite. And, um, and this is one of concrete's key ingredients. And so as long as the concrete is intact, the bacteria remain dormant. But as soon as the concrete cracks, the bacteria wake up and they spawn and they spread and they excrete calcite and that seals up the damage. So as a result of this blend of the living and non-living, the concrete heals itself. Um, human imagination, of course, places no limit on what you can blend with what. So, for example, you can blend the past and the present. Must go faster. And you can blend the, uh, the present and the future. What does it mean, exact change? <laughs> That's already becoming outdated though, right? We don't even use change that much anymore. Anyway, sometimes the, the elements of a blend they can touch, but they don't merge. So for example, I.M. Pei blended an Egyptian pyramid onto the courtyard of the Louvre Palace, and Frida Kahlo painted her head onto the body of a deer. And other times, sources are more merged. So in the Blur building, the walls are made of water. And in this art installation, the human portraits are projected onto trees. And here, sources are even more thoroughly mixed. So it's not easy to tell that Jasper John's painting consists of the numbers 0 through 9 superimposed on top of one another. And we're surrounded by these sorts of blends, typically in ways that we can't see. So 5,000 years ago, humans realized that you could blend copper and tin to make the very first alloy. And you can't really tell that this flexible material is a blend of two others 
but this simple move launched our species into all the successes of the Bronze Age. Okay, so let me summarize where we are with bending, breaking, and blending, which is we've seen examples of these in the arts and the sciences, and uh, what I think is an interesting analogy is if you take something like um, a picture in a computer program and you say, okay, I want to rotate image, the computer program, of course, doesn't care whether it's a picture of a nest or kazoos or kangaroos or whatever. It just operates directly on the zeros and ones. And, and what we suggest is that in the same way, our neural networks are processing input in the same way using standard subroutines. And it doesn't matter whether we're thinking about a patent or a new musical instrument or what to make in our kitchen by combining things or what to say next or anything like that. What we do, what our brains do, is they transform the raw materials of our experience by bending, breaking, and blending them. So I want to say a word about the creative mentality, because we're all running around, you know, we've all got this software running under the hood all the time. And so um, what we depend on is a, uh, is a culture of really rich materials. That's our storehouse, which we then transform. And the interesting part is that we don't just replace the things that are that don't work. We actually update things that we love, and that's why fashions constantly change, and haircuts evolve through the decades, and car makers come up with new models every year, and so on. It's not that what we have now isn't good, it's that next year we want something even better. So take an example, um, Edward Manet, uh, you, he wanted to uh, create something new, so he used this, um, he, he made a picture in 1863 that used this old painting here, this 15th century engraving as a starting point. What he did is he looked at the, at the lower right corner and took these figures here, and he transformed these into two bourgeois gentlemen and a prostitute in a Parisian park. And the resulting painting helped to launch modern art. And then what happened is Picasso innovated on what Manet had done. He showed his love for Manet by remodeling it. And several generations after that, Robert Coldescott remodeled Picasso's Les Demoiselles d'Avignon into his Les Demoiselles d'Alabama. <laughs> and so I think the lesson that emerges from this sort of thing that humans do all the time is that we should treat the past as treasure, but not untouchable. This is what propels creativity, is when we're willing to take the things that we love and remake them in some way. Okay, so for the next, um, for the next point I want to make, I want you to take one second and just imagine standing... Uh, on a beach at sunset. So take a moment to imagine that. Okay, now, by a show of hands, how many of you pictured um, some swimmers in the ocean? How many of you pictured a sliver of moon in the sky? How many of you pictured some coconut husks on the beach? Or the white foam tips of the waves? Okay, so pretty impoverished, right? And the question, <laughs> the, the question is why, given that we've got these super rich brains going on with all kinds of stuff, and in fact, Every concept in the brain is linked to everything else in what's called an associative neural network. So when I'm walking down the hall and I smell coffee, that reminds me of what coffee feels like on my hands and what it tastes like on my tongue and the feeling it'll give me in the name of my barista at Starbucks and all that stuff. It's all linked together in a network. That's how the brain works. So the question is, where did that very rich network of associations go when I asked you to imagine standing on a beach? What happened is you thought about beach and, and then uh, the sand and the water. And, and the problem that this illustrates is what I call the problem of the path of least resistance, which is to say the brain is ruthlessly efficient. Um, in evolutionary times, if you were hungry, 
You went out and you found something to eat. You didn't dance or paint or come to the Auckland Literary Festival. You, uh, you solved the problem. And as a result, there's this real pressure on our brains to solve problems very rapidly. Um, but it turns out, happily, there is a way very easily to dig back in there and, and you know, harvest the rich connections that are in there. And that has to do with proliferating options, with not imagining that there's a single solution to anything that we're trying to solve. So any time that we come up with any solution, we have to constantly ask ourselves, what else? We have to generate another and another. And it's by generating the spectrum of options that, you know, that's a cornerstone of the creative process. So just as an example, here's Velasquez is painting Las Meninas, and here are four of 57 variations that Picasso painted of Las Meninas. And we find this sort of thing everywhere. Um, <clears throat> in, in the United States, um, um, in the post-Reconstruction south of the United States, there were decades of cotton farming that had ruined the soil. And so George Washington Carver realized that an ideal rotation crop would be peanuts, but he knew that southern farmers wouldn't grow this unless there was a good way to sell them. So he invented over 100 uses for the peanut, including peanut oil and milk and face cream and ice cream and punch and glue. And he was given 10 minutes to testify before Congress, um, and they were so impressed by his proliferation of options that they ended up giving him a full hour. And we see this all the time in things, for example, like industrial design, you know, um, Many times, uh, artists like Picasso or, or, or Carver, they put their proliferation on display, but often this happens behind the scenes. So here's an industrial designer who's trying to come up with a, uh, a new kind of vehicle for a single person. So he designed things as standing or seated or one or two or three wheels or stand up or you know, fold up, and all, all on, this, on the way to developing this, uh, the city smoother, which is his concept vehicle here. But the point is we only see what the final answer was, and we don't see all the work that happened behind there, but proliferation of options is a critical piece for designers. And, and similarly, Thomas Edison, he set idea quotas for his employees, and this is something that I've copied in my laboratory, which is whenever somebody comes and says, hey, I don't know how to solve this problem, I, you know, copying Edison, I say, terrific, uh, you know, come back tomorrow with seven solutions for how to solve it. Because what that encourages is not just reproductivity, but a new kind of productivity where people go and they finally solve it and they think, okay, good, that's the way to do it. I'm going to do that very basic thing. But then they're forced to think of another and another and another. And it's never the first answer that's the best one. It's always a later answer that turns out to be the best one. So the key is industrious minds are constantly pushing themselves to generate a, a stream of alternatives. And so whenever, whenever you land on a creative solution to anything, just make sure you ask yourself, what else? Okay, so now there's another twist to this, this whole idea of proliferation, which is that we, we saw that all creativity is tethered to its history, and so the question is how far away do you move from history? Because if you stay too close to the familiar, you might be left behind, and if you go too far, you might uh, lose everybody. So the question is how, how close to stay there. So take the BlackBerry smartphone. Uh, this was the first mobile phone to incorporate a QWERTY keyboard, and here's the BlackBerry market share. And so what happened here? The BlackBerry started off as a winning idea, but the company didn't anticipate how, how fast touchscreen technology would catch on. So what happened is the company held on to the right answer for too long. They stayed too close to the familiar for too long as the world was changing. So you might think, okay, great. What you need to do, instead of holding on to earlier successes, is take a big leap but there's a risk of going too far, which is that no one may follow. So 
You may know that between the end of, for example, the Civil War in the United States and World War II, there were several hundred attempts to create a universal language. So dignitaries like Eleanor Roosevelt, they really supported these efforts because they knew that a shared language would help enormously with world peace. And many of you have uh, surely heard of Esperanto, which was the thing that came the closest to achieving that vision. Just after World War II, a half a million people pro, um, uh, pro petitioned the United Nations to make this the universal language for the world. So here's a clip from a William Shatner movie that was filmed entirely in Esperanto. So, despite the great acting, Esperanto never caught on. <laughs> and, and even though we all know that our world would be enriched by having a universal language, it turned out that was just too big a move to ask populations to do that. So, <clears throat> What this means is it can be challenging to find the sweet spot between novelty and familiarity. If you stick too closely to what works, it wears out its welcome. If you leave the comfortable too far behind, it fails to find followers. And so the solution for all creative people in the arts and the sciences is always to travel different distances from the standard. So it's not just about proliferating options, but it's proliferating options in this way, where some are sort of standard and some are completely wacky and everywhere in between. So just as an example, um, the designer Sarah Burton created the royal wedding dress worn by Kate Middleton, but she's also created all these other wedding dresses that are less likely to be worn at imperial nuptials. Um, <laughs> and the same person who patented a new kind of blouse and a new kind of refrigerator at one end of the spectrum, at the other end of the spectrum, came up with the theory of relativity. Um, and this kind of covering the spectrum happens all the time. There's an industrial designer named uh, Norman Bell Geddes, and he devised a host of practical commercial products like furniture and kitchen appliances and cocktail shakers and radios, but he didn't stop there. He also imagined futuristic looking cars and buses with the fuel tanks and the tail fins and a flying car called the rotable airplane and, and, and an aerial restaurant that was 20 stories tall and, and you're spinning around on there and, uh, and a house with movable walls like garage doors that lifted up. And so he covered the spectrum from things that were really standard all the way to really wacky. And it's not to say that any of these wacky ideas caught on, but what did catch on for his career was all the stuff that, that lived in the middle. And, and companies do this all the time. For example, Mercedes-Benz is always updating its sedans a little bit at a time, but its engineers have also conceived of the biome concept car, which is a biodegradable car that would be grown entirely from seeds and the zero emission fuels wouldn't be stored in the tank but would flow through the body of the car, and the electronics are powered by the solar sunroof. And for now, the key is that the biome car exists only on the computer, and Mercedes has no immediate plans to develop this, but the goal of a concept car is not to be the next car, it's instead to plant a flag on the far horizon to figure out what's possible and what can I do in the middle between now and then, whether or not society ever goes in that direction. And good companies do this kind of stuff all the time. Just as an example, Microsoft is constantly improving its computer servers. Um, you know, it's doing the standard things, but the circuitry generates a lot of heat. And so uh, what they've done recently is they're experimenting with submersible tanks that would house computer servers in the depths of the ocean. And so the first prototype made it back safely to shore recently, covered in barnacles. And so, uh, you know, Fisher Price is doing the same thing. It's always upgrading its stuff in standard ways, but it's also got an eye on what's coming further down the line. Its future of parenting line 
is always looking at how technological advances will impact the child rearing of tomorrow. Um, and one of the things that I'm doing in my laboratory uh, that I'll just mention is this issue of we've, we've built this, uh, this vest that's covered in vibratory motors for deaf people and we convert sound into patterns of vibration on the skin and deaf people can come to understand the world this way. And so you can just see the, you know, as she says the word sound on the left, you see how, the, how that word is getting broken up into frequencies and so on. When she says the word touch, it has a different look. You can just sort of get a quick sense of that. But what we've uh, found along the way is that we're able to cover the spectrum with all kinds of cool ideas. So we're putting sensors on, uh, on prosthetic legs so that people can feel their prosthetic leg and learn how to walk again rapidly. Um, and then we're going farther out and doing stuff like um, we hooked this up to a, a drone so that the pilot is feeling the pitch, yaw, roll, orientation, and heading of the drone so he can learn how to fly it in, in the fog or in the dark by feeling it on his skin. So it's essentially like he's stretching his skin up, up there. Um, and then, of course, we've done uh, more interesting and wacky things like we can scrape uh, Twitter for any particular hashtag and look at what people are saying about it and then do an automated sentiment analysis and capture... Uh, thousands or millions of these every second or every minute and, and, you know, and pass that into the body so you can feel, you can be plugged into the consciousness of thousands of people all at the same time, which is a new kind of human experience. Um, and here's just one more example. Here we're feeding a real-time stream of data from the internet to, to a participant wearing the vest. So he feels this for five seconds and then two buttons will appear on his screen, a yellow and a blue, and he presses one and then a second and a half later he gets feedback. And he doesn't know what the data represents, but what we're actually feeding is a real-time feed of stock market data, and he's making buy and sell decisions. And then we're giving feedback on whether, uh, whether he did the right thing or not, and we're figuring out if people can learn how to be plugged into the economic movements of the planet that way. So <laughs> this is just an example of how we can cover the spectrum of this. So um, the idea is that the person who only tinkers with prior art is gonna be weak on breakthroughs, but the person who dives full-time into moonshots may never develop the competencies to realize uh, a vision. So instead of remaining at a fixed distance, an optimal strategy is to generate a range of ideas, some of which stay closer to home and some of which fly farther. And um, you know, one way you can see this is with this bull series by Picasso and Lichtenstein. So both painters start with realistic images of bulls, and then they gradually move further and further away, covering this spectrum. So although they began with the same starting point, Picasso and Lichtenstein arrive at very different endpoints. And this is what we always want to do ourselves and get our children to do and so on, which is learn what's in the world and then carry it somewhere new. Um, finally, there's no such thing as a, as a can't miss creative idea. So you know, none of us can ever attempt something new and rest assured of the results. Um, there's a great flight museum that I recently went to, and I was so amazed. I just hadn't realized the number of types of airplanes that people had tried to develop before we got to the fixed-wing aircraft. So the idea is that for every good idea that makes it, there's lots of others that didn't survive. It takes a high risk tolerance to be creative. Um, as an example, to invent the bagless vacuum cleaner, it took James Dyson 15 years and over 5,000 prototypes to get there. And, and many of you probably saw a couple months ago now the, uh, the Falcon Heavy launch and landing. Um, and that was an incredible thing to, to see, to witness that. But as some of you know, Elon Musk also released a, uh, a blooper reel of all the failed attempts that had preceded this. Um, and so 
the reason that he's beating his rivals into space is not because of resources or talent alone, but because of a willingness to fail. And that is always the difference between an innovator and a problem solver. So, so the key here is that across human history, what we find is that new ideas always take root in environments where failure is tolerated. It's important to maintain fearlessness in the face of error. So I'm going to recap this, and then I want to open this up to any questions about anything. So just to summarize this, creativity is part of the software of every, every human brain. This is just what we do all the time. Innovation doesn't come out of thin air. It's uh, all new ideas have a history. Ideas evolve. Um, the creative process transcends disciplines, so we bend and break and blend our storehouse of experience, remodeling what we've taken in. Creativity is overt in the arts, which is why we need to teach uh, our children. We, we need to include the arts in the way that we, that we educate. Um, we propel our creativity when we break good, when we go different distances from community standards, and when we proliferate options, and also when we tolerate risk. So the key thing is that we're a species with a runaway imagination. As far as we can tell, no other species puts as much effort into exploring imaginary territories. And our innate cognitive software has produced a society with increasingly faster innovation, and it feeds upon its latest ideas. So what we have now are 8 billion brains running around the planet applying the software to everything that they see. And the, the cool part is there are more raw materials than ever to bend, break, and blend. So we're all chiseling in the cliffside of history to build our tomorrows, and by understanding this, this ability to innovate, which is our most uh, you know, profound and, and deeply human capacity, uh, we can all go out to remake our world. I figured I would just show you one last thing before I take questions, which is um, I've just finished my next uh, television documentary, which is about creativity, and I, I, it's not out just yet. It'll be out next month, but I just got the preview for it, so I thought I'd show this to you very quickly. So here we go. As a neuroscientist, I'm fascinated by the power of creativity. I want to show you how this uniquely human ability has transformed the world we live in, and how it has the power to transform our lives. I am somebody that I never knew I could be now. Second sticks. <laughs> By meeting some of the most creative minds I know, why are you a songwriter? Well, it's, it's, a, it's actually a really difficult question. From across the creative spectrum. If you don't try shit, you ain't gonna be shit. I'll explore the subject with them. A big part of creativity is to create the extraordinary out of the ordinary. <laughs> discover some of their creative secrets. If someone's like, that's weird, I'm like, yes. You know, and that's always kind of what I'm trying to do. How they struggle. What is the role of failure in your creative process? Well, I failed very consistently. Sometimes it hurts like hell and it's embarrassing. You know, people get mad at you. It's hard, man. That's not a comfortable position all the time. You're engaged in, in a kind of battle. It's not like you kind of sit around on a silken cushion and ideas kind of come down. It, it, that doesn't actually happen. Whether we're creating in the arts or the sciences, in our kitchens or our garages, the brain is accessing the same creative software. Regardless of what you do for a living, creativity is essential to your happiness. 
putting these personal stories together with the science of how the brain creates will allow us to demystify the process. This is our chandelier. And discover ways to unlock and unleash our own creative potential. Because creativity isn't the preserve of an elite few. Creativity is what human brains do. Okay, I think that's it. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a podcast from the 2018 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes and SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.